Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. Today we'll be in chapter 5, looking at verses 1 and 2, in order to introduce one of the most famous sections in all of the Gospel of Matthew. It's a sermon that has been cherished and loved by countless generations, uh, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I love the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people are in agreement with me there. And yet, to be honest, there are a lot of times that I really dislike the Sermon on the Mount. And I think most people would agree with me there, too. It's a challenging sermon which says a lot of things that makes us feel uncomfortable. Um, in fact, I like the way that Scott McKnight puts it in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, quote, The contrast between Jesus' vision and our life bothers many of us. Throughout church history, many have softened, reduced, recontextualized, and in some cases abandoned what Jesus taught, ironically, in order to be more Christian, end quote. He then quotes uh, the great Jewish Orthodox scholar Lapid, who on, on his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, quote, in fact, the history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that is shocking, demanding, and uncompromising, and render it harmless, end quote. It's so important at the very beginning, as we start studying the Sermon on the Mount, to take the posture of disciples who are going to listen to Jesus and admit that he is the one who has the authority and can inform us about our ethics. This sermon has been studied by Christians for a really, really long time. And because of that, there are a lot of introductory issues which we need to briefly discuss here at the outset. One question that's important for us to consider is, what is it that we're even looking at? Is this properly even called a sermon? Um, Some people have suggested that Matthew has made kind of like a a best of album of Jesus's teachings, that he has several different things that Jesus has said, and then he wove them together to make something that looks like a sermon. Now, you might wonder, why is it that anybody would want to think that? Well, in Luke's version, uh, Jesus' words are kind of different. Uh, In Luke chapter 6, we read something that's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. It has a lot of the same ideas, but there are a lot of things that are different. So one way of explaining this difference is to say that both Matthew and Luke have done their best job of tying together several different loose threads of Jesus's teachings scattered throughout his ministry. In other words, what we read in Matthew 5 through 7 is really Matthew's uh, editing of other statements of Jesus. And what we have in Luke 6 is Luke's editing of several of various statements of Jesus throughout his ministry. Now, the difficulty with that approach is that it doesn't do justice to the verses that we just read, uh, Matthew 5, 1 to 2. We have Jesus going up on to a mountain, his disciples coming to him, he opens his mouth, he says something, and then at the end of chapter 7, he finishes and he comes down. Matthew has made it seem like this is one 
sermon, he hasn't given us any clues that he has made together a best of album of Jesus's statements. So if we're going to believe Matthew, and we certainly should, then we should reject that approach. However, there are two other ways of resolving the differences between Matthew 5 to 7 and Luke 6. One possibility is that, well, uh, maybe Jesus said a lot of the same sorts of things at different places in his ministry. After all, a lot of modern-day preachers have that same approach, and they'll reuse material or illustrations, or they have hobby horses that they like to pound the pulpit on and repeat over and over again. Maybe Jesus did something like that. And so what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is one particular sermon, and what we have on the Sermon on the Plain, that is Luke 6, is something that's just a different sermon altogether at a different place in Jesus' ministry. Now, that's entirely possible, but uh, a more preferable approach is that uh, the doctrine of inspiration does not guarantee that when Matthew records in what we have today as the red letters, that this is uh, exactly word for word what the historical Jesus uh, actually said, as if we were to go back in time and take out a video camera and record what he said and transcribe it, this is exactly what we would have. No, the, the ancient first century genre of, of biography allowed the author to have a certain amount of flexibility in recording in his own words what the person said. And Luke has used his own degree of freedom, and Matthew has used his own uh, degree of liberty in uh, summarizing what Jesus said and taught. And that means he's going to leave out certain things, and he's going to put other things in other ways, um, given the sorts of um, emphases that different authors um, particularly have. So one question is, is this even a sermon or is it a collected group of sayings? I think it's best to understand this as basically the same sermon as the Sermon on the Plain, um, but Matthew tells it in his own unique way and Luke says his in his own unique way. Another question that people have asked about the Sermon on the Mount is, um, why is it that Jesus actually gives us this sermon? Is it attainable hyperbole? Or is it unattainable law? Uh, some theological traditions, particularly uh, Lutherans, have emphasized that uh, the Sermon on the Mount is really unattainable. The point that Jesus has in, in giving these harsh things is to show us that we are sinners. Sinners who then need a Savior. It is like the Pauline use of the law. It is to reveal the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is for us to walk away thinking, oh my goodness, I could never do any of these things. Isn't there another way? And the rest of the gospel, particularly in Jesus's atoning death, presents us with that other way. Now, that's a little bit of a caricature of the view, but some people have that approach. The whole idea of the Sermon on the Mount is just to convince us that we're sinners. That can hardly be right. Clearly, Jesus is presenting all of the things which uh, he is teaching in Matthew 5 to 7 as things that he actually expects his real disciples to do. He is teaching his disciples, his committed followers, how he actually wants to behave. We can just flip to uh, the end of the sermon to note very briefly 
that Jesus presents two different ways, two different options. You either do the things that he's saying or you don't do them. The whole point is to put people on the horns of a dilemma. They can either obey or disobey. There is no third option of, of simply acknowledging that we don't have it in and of ourselves to obey these things. That means that some of the really uh, harsh demands of the Sermon on the Mount are best understood as hyperbole. Um, after all, when Jesus says that we are to be perfect, he doesn't mean at, at the end of chapter 5, verse 48, he doesn't mean that we are to be actually without any fault ever. After all, the Sermon on the Mount does include the Lord's Prayer, which is a prayer for forgiveness. Um, which acknowledges that there are times that we fall short in the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. So a, a second question that people are concerned with is, is this attainable hyperbole or unattainable law? It's best to understand this as attainable hyperbole. Another question that people have asked about the Sermon on the Mount is, is this uh, even for Christians today? In other words, is, is this for a future eschatological end times period? usually described as the millennium? Or is this, in fact, for the church age? After all, Jesus does say later on, he talks about going to the temple. Well, we don't go to the temple today to offer a sacrifice there. Maybe this is just for people in a previous dispensation, like the age of law, or it's for a future coming day, like uh, for the millennium. Well, it can be for a previous uh, age of law and also for the millennium. However, the mistake to be avoided is to say that this sermon is not for today. Nothing could be further from the truth. Now, let me give you two reasons for why we should see the Sermon on the Mount as being applicable today. One is from the time that Matthew actually writes his gospel. Granted, Jesus says these things uh, before his death, and resurrection before the inauguration of the church age, but Matthew records them during the church age. And it just seems incredible to me to think that Matthew would go through such lengths to record this incredible sermon for something that his readers couldn't and shouldn't directly apply. A second reason we should see this as being valid and applicable today is uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. The Lord Jesus there says his disciples are to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And this process is to spread throughout all the world, throughout the end of the age. And one of the tasks in the Great Commission is that people would obey everything that Jesus taught. Well, one of the things that surely must be included in that are the great ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. So that's another question. Um, are these for us today, or is it only for people uh, of a different age or di of a different dispensation? Another important issue that people uh, ask about the Sermon on the Mount is, um, is Jesus giving us here something that contradicts the Old Testament law, uh, or is he giving us the true interpretation of the law? In other words, we could put it this way, is this true law or is this new law? Well, af after all, there are these so-called antitheses in chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to you, but I say, or you have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. Now, the best way to understand this is that Jesus is giving us the, uh, his authoritative spin on what the Old Testament has always meant. 
Now, there will be a couple difficulties and hang-ups as, as we go uh, throughout chapter 5, and we'll talk about those. But at no point does Jesus say, the Old Testament was wrong, Moses got it wrong, but I'm here to correct Moses. Instead, he is presented as um, somebody who truly understands what Moses was actually getting at. He is the one who has the authority to interpret the Old Testament law. Another issue that is important for us to consider, just as a brief introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, is, uh, is this a private sermon or is this a public sermon? Uh, most people, I think, uh, and at least in our society, come with the default assumption that the Sermon on the Mount is individualistic. After all, it is talking about a lot of personal issues. Uh, if you lust, or if you call someone an evil name, or uh, if, if you are harboring unforgiveness, or if you're judgmental, or things like that. Certainly, there's a lot for us to apply here individually, uh, but it should be noted that when Jesus delivers this sermon, he delivers it to the whole community, to the group, to the disciples. And so these things are to be enacted and to be lived out by a whole group of people. Um, sometimes people have this idea that, well, I don't need the church. I can just kind of have my own personal relationship with, um, with Jesus Christ, and that's all that I need. And we can sing songs like, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. In fact, we get that from the Sermon on the Mount, but notice even there in chapter 5, he says, you, plural, are the light of the world. Now, we're not just, uh, he's not saying that to individuals, the whole group of people collectively together are the light of the world. This is, uh, this Sermon on the Mount is to describe a whole group of people who are the ones then who will inherit the kingdom, which is what we're going to talk about next time when we jump into the Beatitudes. We've briefly gone over some introductory issues uh, for the Sermon on the Mount. This has been contemplated by Christians for century after century after century. Let me just end with this encouragement that if we are serious about following Jesus Christ, one of the central factors, one of the central elements of following Jesus Christ is actually doing what he said. It is taking his ethics as our own. And that means uh, being devoted to big blocks of ethical teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount. It's just contradictory to say we want to be followers of Jesus Christ and yet have only a moderate or mild interest in something like the Sermon on the Mount. If we are fervent disciples of Christ, followers of the Lord Jesus, nothing should be more important to us than actually listening to what he had to say in a body of material like this. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.